Yeah, the book did make me feel really good about being human on that level, <laughs> where, where it made us seem like these Swiss army knives where we show up and then we niche switch, uh, we specialize, we have this like combination of generalists and specialists who then manage to overrun any habitat. <laughs> it's good news with a giant asterisk on it, right? The fact is we are an incredibly special species and we are adapted to something that no other species, I mean, species deal with it, but we are adapted to change. It's what we do. We bootstrap new software to deal with new problems, right? We're very good at it. And that does offer nothing but hope for the pickle we're in, because if any species was going to work, you know, we created this problem, but we're also positioned really well to figure out how to get out of it. But it comes with a lot of other stuff. Selection has been pushing us in the direction of just simply getting our lineages genes into the future at any cost. And so the point is human beings are capable of all kinds of terrible stuff too. And you know, the, the deepest message in the book may be that it is time for us to take evolution, the mindless process out of the driver's seat and to recognize our evolutionary purpose isn't interesting or honorable, but we are perfectly capable of defining a purpose that is worthy of us. And that's exactly what we should do at this moment in history. It is my distinct pleasure and privilege to welcome to the Forward Podcast, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, the co-authors of this fabulous new book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Great to see you again. Wonderful to be here. Great to see you as well. Uh, so full disclosure, uh, I have admired both Brett and Heather for quite some time, and I also hung out with Brett's brother, Eric, in the Bay Area over the last couple of years. So I, it's so that this uh, this is going to be um, something of a fawning interview. <laughs> I guess you, you're all very used to that. Uh, so you're both evolutionary biology PhDs uh, who managed to get a teaching appointment in the same place, which is next to impossible from what I know about academia. So did you meet while you were uh, both getting your degrees at the University of Michigan? Yeah, that so-called two-body problem in academia is very, very hard to break, isn't it? Um, but you know, we, were, we were lucky in that regard. We actually met each other in high school. We were friends in high school. No. Yep, <laughs> I'm afraid so. Yeah. What kind of nerdy high school was this? Where was this at? Uh, it was uh, in Santa Monica, California. It was an odd high school. Uh, called Crossroads, which actually uh, the campus is an alley with lots of repurposed buildings. Um, it, so it, it's a it's an eclectic school. But this was not like a high school romance situation. Did you end up linking up later, or was it a high school romance situation? Uh, from I, I was I was in love with Heather from very early on. But um, but no, I we did not get together until college. Yeah, we were we were friends for several years before we before we got together and and have been ever since. And so you went to college together and it sounds like Brett was crushing on you a bit, Heather. Uh, and then you started dating and then you made a decision to go get the, your PhDs jointly. We, we, didn't, we, didn't go to, we didn't go to college together. We, uh, we left high school as friends and 
at some point I, I went to different coasts. We went to different coasts and, uh, you know, I already knew how I felt about Heather, but at some point, uh, I got a marvelous letter and, um, we can elide the part about how I botched the response to the letter, but nonetheless, we did end up, um, dropping out of school together, spending some time and then going back to school together. Wow. They should make a movie out of this romance. This sounds incredibly uh, romantic and quite eventful, especially after reading your book, because uh, it seems like it's easier to try and figure out where you haven't been as opposed to where you have been. <laughs> like anytime there's like a story in the book, it's like, I remember the time we were in Central America, Madagascar, <laughs> like, like <laughs> you name it. Uh, the, the, the book is amazing. I was excited to read it um, because the thesis is around how we are in modern circumstances that may or may not always be in keeping with some of our evolutionary tendencies or our own well-being. And you all dig into many areas in detail. How has the reception been? I, I, I get the sense that people have been very, very uh, excited to talk to you both. There has been extraordinary reception in some places and um, almost complete silence in in others. Some of you know some of what I would have hoped for twenty years ago in terms of what reception to what turns out to have been a New York Times bestselling book hasn't existed at all. You know we we haven't we haven't seen any talk in the the mainstream outlets. But um, you know we're here talking to you. And we've talked to this is as mainstream as it gets, Heather. I think we've reached far more audience than we would have if we had been excerpted in the Atlantic, for instance. Um, but it doesn't it hasn't followed any of the paths that one might have expected it to 10 years ago, but then isn't. And you know, this is part of what you yourself talk about in your newest book, um, that that is part of what modernity is showing us, that nothing that used to be the case um, seems to be the case anymore. So. Uh, First of all, you may, you joke, you're not the mainstream, but you mm -hmm. hopefully are the headwaters. We are hoping yeah. to see that a, a small trickle that emerges from somewhere and becomes a, a, a giant unstoppable force is, is the hope. Um, but I would also say there's some analogy between what happened to our book and, uh, and what happened to you in the presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I, it would be fair to say. T we were, tell me more. Were, were you, uh, we were Yang. You called by another Asian man's name? <laughs> well, they did for a while put up pictures of, of random Asians in our place. Uh, no, the, what happened to us was the so-called mainstream, which you know, as we know, is not the real mainstream, right? People have gotten so used to, uh, you know, being lied to that when they hear authentic stuff, they gravitate to it. And so the real mainstream is just sort of not officially acknowledged. And, you know, from our perspective, this is what happened to you in the presidential campaign, right? You were uh, the idea of, hey, an honest guy who wants to figure out what the best solutions are and isn't wedded to an ideology and isn't wedded to, um, you know, some particular constituency, that was very appealing to lots of us. And so what needed to happen was you needed to be undermined. And they undermined you in every way from cutting off your mic when you had things to say to putting up pictures of random Asian men and all of these. And so the point was, you know, you didn't reflect in the mirror, right? And as Heather points out, our book sold out almost instantly. In fact, within three days of launch, it was no longer available. Um, it was so popular. 
Um, and yet, from the mainstream outlets, there was radio silence. And so the popularity of it was all driven by interviews on podcasts and word of mouth and yeah, it's, it's effectively like the modern word of mouth and that you know that's what grassroots is you know maybe maybe there's no comparable word for grassroots over in share this book space but you know grassroots political campaign and grassroots share these ideas please is actually they're analogous and they're what we refer to in the book as as campfire at some level it's you know let's let's get together let's exchange and expand on each other's ideas and then and then disperse and find other campfires and seed the ideas there yeah i i love that metaphor and there are so many ideas in your book that would strike some as common sense what I love is you both have such unassailable academic credentials where you literally have two PhDs in evolutionary biology saying, hey, here's something about humankind. And look, it applies in other environments. And look, we're even going to throw in another species just to, just to show that, you know, that this is very much based in fact. Uh, so what handful of things do you think would lead someone in the mainstream to want to, for example, not talk about your, <laughs> your, your book. If you were to pick out a few ideas where you were like, oh, I think they had an issue with our talking about uh, perhaps sex and gender in that way, or, or if there was another that, uh, that sticks out in your own minds. I don't think it works like that. I don't think it's that individuals arrive at the idea that they don't want to talk about the book. I think there is a general sense that there is a narrative, you ran into it in the presidential campaign, that narrative is feeble and it, it is vulnerable to critique. And the problem for the mainstream is that evolutionary biology provides a toolkit that actually allows you to proceed from first principles and deduce what's taking place and to say things about uh, virtually any biological phenomenon, be it a, you know, a pandemic uh, or, you know, the climate policy and its effect on habitats, any of these things. It allows you to know how to walk into that question and begin to address it. And so if you're tending a feeble narrative, you don't want people with their own toolkit to say, hey, actually, what you just said doesn't make any sense. Here's the way you would actually approach that if you wanted to figure out what the best policy was. So, you know, the more I, the more I hear us talking, the more I think what you ran into and what we ran into is the same thing, which is an instinctive sense that that thing is not under control and therefore it needs to just not even be acknowledged. I guess I'll add that there's also a cartoon version of what an evolutionary approach to understanding humans is that um, immediately calls to mind things like eugenics and Nazis, right? You know, those people were doing Darwinism and therefore anyone who's talking about uh, Darwinism or evolutionary principles must be up to no good, must be crypto, you know, racists or sexists or whatever it is. And that has become sort of mainstreamed in academia, especially in social sciences, wherein people who are sophisticated enough to understand that they have to acknowledge that evolution happens, of course, in terms of evolution of hearts and, you know, the structure of the brain, the, you know, there's effectively a belief that once we're talking about human culture and consciousness, that's something else. That is explained by some other set of principles. And of course, that itself is a religious position, which, uh, which such academics don't tend to acknowledge. But it then it becomes easy to say, oh, don't talk about, for instance, sex and gender 
uh, because we're doing that over here in this other space. You people, please stick to you know squid and baboons where you know, where you belong. The Nazis thought they were doing Darwinism, but they weren't doing it well. And in some sense, if you look at our book and you read it carefully, what you find out is that the the most major error that they made was that human specialness isn't housed in the genome, right? The genome is a platform on which human specialness is built. It is built above. It is literally epigenetic, right? And so the, the idea of a creature that is so heavily software-based that the normal way that selection proceeds in other creatures doesn't apply usefully if we're to figure out, you know, why, why people succeed. Um, so in essence, this was a very poor quality analysis on their part. And if you want to understand what a good quality analysis is, and the good news from that good quality analysis is human specialness is totally democratizable. And in fact, that's what we do automatically, right? We integrate our cultures, we borrow things from each other. And what we come up with is, is a software program that is better than we could come up with independently. Yeah, let's figure out the best ideas and cultural norms across all societies and uh, make them available to all. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, the book did make me feel really good about being human on that level. <laughs> it made us seem like these Swiss Army knives where we show up and then we niche switch. Uh, we specialize. We have this like combination of generalists and specialists who then manage to overrun any habitat. <laughs> it's good news with a giant asterisk on it, right? The fact is we are an incredibly special species and we are adapted to something that no other species, I mean, species deal with it, but we are adapted to change. It's what we do. We bootstrap new software to deal with new problems, right? We're very good at it. And that does offer nothing but hope for the pickle we're in, because if any species was going to work, you know, we created this problem, but we're also positioned really well to figure out how to get out of it. But it comes with a lot of other stuff. Selection has been pushing us in the direction of just simply getting our 
lineages genes into the future at any cost and so the point is human beings are capable of all kinds of terrible stuff too and you know the, the deepest message in the book may be that it is time for us to take evolution the mindless process out of the driver's seat and to recognize our evolutionary purpose isn't interesting or honorable but we are perfectly capable of defining a purpose that is worthy of us and that's exactly what we should do at this moment in history yeah that, that was the conclusion of the book which was really profound in talking about the fourth frontier which is something that a, a lot of people i think would agree with that uh we're collision course with disaster species-wide um that this growth imperative will eventually make no sense uh it, it did put me in mind of Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, from a, a while ago, which I'm, I'm sure you, you both uh, read, read when it came out. It's consistent with what a lot of people think in terms of the sustainability of the environment, where if you have companies that have an, a growth imperative, then eventually, and societies, you point out that our population's now at 7 billion, which by the way, when, when we were all growing up, what was the world's population? Well, it depends how early you go, but um, I recall I recall it crossing into above seven in our adult lifespans. Well, because I, I, I ask because I remember as a kid when I learned how many people were on Earth, I think it was either two or three billion. And so as a person, that number stuck in my head. And then when someone told me it was seven billion later, I was like, when did it become seven billion? So I, I, I want someone to take a look at like what you know whether or not I'm misremembering as a no, kid as to like. I don't think you are. I, I remember thinking about this about my grandfather's lifespan. My grandfather was born in 1913, um, and the world population doubled twice while he was on Earth, which is a staggering fact. Yeah, right? and you know, we, we point out in the book that our desire for growth is not unusual. And, you know, that's just like the goal being to reproduce yourself into the future as far as possible is not unusual. It's also not honorable. So, you know, how do we harness that desire, you know, understand the desire both for a personal sense of growth and sort of a societal sense of growth and abundance, and there's always more around the next corner, and turn it into something that is has the sense of growth without actually requiring the use of more resources because we can't keep doing that. Yeah, so we're going to come back to what we're going to do species-wide, but I, I want to explore some of the key ideas in the book, and there's so many. Um, you talk about medicine, food, sleep, parenthood, uh, relationships. So you could do a podcast about really any one of these. Um, but I, I was trying to distill some of the key points, uh, and one of the things that stuck with me is a story about Brett breaking his wrist and then having uh, what sounds like a nightmarish couple of days, like where, where it's like excruciating pain and <laughs> you end up taking another trip with it and uh, talk about how after a lot of hardship, um, eventually it healed and it healed well, but that 95% of people would have immobilized it, cast it, maybe taken some pharmaceutical painkillers <laughs> and done a bunch of other things um, that address one aspect of the injury, either the bone or the pain, um, but don't necessarily address the entire thing in terms of soft tissue recovery or uh, usability or any of those things. And I thought that that story, one, um, 
you know, it sticks with you because, you know, no, no one wants to be going for days with a broken wrist uh, without drugs, in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, I mean, like, I like to think that I do the same thing you did, but who the heck knows? Um, but but there was something um, where that principle applied many times throughout the book, where that you're trying to home in on one particular bad thing you're getting rid of. Um, and then in the process of getting rid of that bad thing, uh, you end up having unintended uh, effects elsewhere. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And with regard to that particular story, there's at least two, there's at least two things at play. We've got the fact that human bodies and brains are actually anti-fragile, right? We actually become stronger with use, with with insult, even you know, to a point. There, you know, there are certainly insults and injuries beyond which we cannot recover, beyond which we cannot repair. Um, but the response to immobilize all kinds of injuries, which actually would withstand, would not only withstand, but actually repair more quickly if they were able to continue to be used, uh, is an aspect of modern medicine that you know, we argue is, is an error because, because it's employed as a hard and fast rule. You know, when you break something, you immobilize it as opposed to what kind of break is it? Does this one warrant that kind of immobilization? And if so, for how long, et cetera. And then there's also just the tendency to reduce um, our experiences to single parts of single parts of what they are. I'm feeling pain. Pain doesn't feel good. Therefore, I must get rid of it. Instead of recognizing that pain is an adaptive response, uh, which we should consider. You know, what is it that the pain is telling me? What might it be that I am doing that I can reduce such that the pain goes away so that I can use the pain as an indicator of whether or not my behavior is helping me or harming me as opposed to get rid of the pain so that I can continue on with, frankly, whatever I might be doing that's causing me to be in pain. So I would, uh, I would just add the incident. I broke my wrist. I fell off a, a hoverboard that um, our younger Those son. things are death traps, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Those things are. No, I, 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 I'm a big fan of the electric unicycle, but I, I would agree with you the hoverboard is a death trap, uh, both in terms of its battery and also its control mechanism. But anyway, I fell off one as I was getting on it for the first time, and I felt my wrist crack. I knew what had happened. And the thing is, I had harbored the following belief for, I don't know, since I first learned about uh, biology in high school, which is we are a kind of creature that has limbs that can repair from a break because many of our ancestors had breaks recovered, had offspring after that, right? Not every creature is like that. A horse is famously difficult to repair a broken limb because a horse's ancestors, if they broke a limb, very quickly got eaten by predators. And so there's no selective force to build the repair machinery. So my feeling was, okay, I'm a creature that knows how to repair its own limbs. Why is the instinct to go to a doctor who then immobilizes and does something that uh, is a novel intervention? Surely nature has a program for what to do. Now, one caveat, I made very sure that what I had was a fracture in which nothing was misaligned. There was no indication that I had broken all the way through, right? It was a crack. And I learned my lesson, right? I started immediately utilizing it just a little, right? That was the thing that got me in so much pain that first night uh, was that I used it too much. I was not super cautious with it right away. But it wasn't even weeks before I was way better off, right? It was a few days uh, 
before I had some use of my limb and then it quickly got better. And, you know, it very much reflected my hypothesis that there's a built-in program and it probably beats the heck out of a cast if your break is sufficiently minor. And we do, we do also, as you know, tell the story in the book of our oldest son breaking his arm when he was very young. And it was such a remarkable break um, that he needed surgical intervention. And you know, without without modern surgical capacity, he would be deformed. Now, you know, his yep. his arm would have stopped growing, uh, and you know, he would have you know, he would be very asymmetric and have much lower functionality absent that capacity. So, this again, you know, there are no set and forget rubrics here, and that you know, that also is one of the messages of evolutionary thinking is that it actually is clarifying and simplifying, but you do have to carry around with you an expectation that. Whatever happens, okay, I'm going to have to think this through just a little bit from first principles to see what I should do next, as opposed to it's a break, cast it. You know, that's too simple a rubric. Yeah, and in fact, uh, in our older son Zach's case, when he broke his arm, it also points to the central theme in our book, which is about novelty and what it can do to you. In fact, our point is that we are in a stage of hyper novelty, right? Novelty humans deal with well, hyper novelty no creature deals with. And our older son, when he broke his arm in the spectacular way, it was the combination of a couple of mundane novel factors, a small set of stairs and a hippity hop, neither of which have any analogy in the ancestral environment. And the combination of them resulted in a child doing something that would have been a rarity for an ancestor, right? The forces were just too great and the break was beyond what uh, normal repair would handle. Now, I'm going to give you some insight into uh, my marriage for a moment. <laughs> so I grew up the son of immigrants, and my father was the type of person who wouldn't see doctors or medical professionals very much. Uh, and I am the sort of person who tends to just uh, wait for myself to get better. Uh, you know, I don't really uh, take drugs or um medicine I, I don't even have right now this is gonna sound terrible but like I, I don't even know who my primary care physician is <laughs> like I would need to, to go, go, um, uh, go get one uh, my wife on the other hand um, likes to treat so um, if I'm under the weather she'll just like throw a bunch of um, things in front of me pills digestibles whatever they are uh, and Sometimes I just take them because, you know, like I, I don't um, care enough to uh, to have a like any conflict over it. <laughs> just like, you know, I mean, I assume, you know, like she's done some research and, and homework. There's some middle ground, I'd imagine, uh, where one aspect of our different approach to parenting was when our son was diagnosed as autistic, our older son. Uh, where she would say, hey, I think we should have, um, you know, him like evaluated or whatnot. And I was always like, yeah, he's fine. He's fine. Eh, you know, like I, I kind of had that attitude. And then when she did get him diagnosed, I was like, oh, yeah, you were right. <laughs> I don't know if this is a customary dynamic between parents. So I'm sharing this in, in part because I imagine there are people listening to this who might resemble one or the other, where they, they might be someone who just ignores things, I tend to fall in that camp, honestly, um, or, or they fall into a camp where they try and get a remedy for everything. Uh, you're suggesting that there, there's probably a better process <laughs> than either of those. 
That's an, that's an amazing characterization that you just provided. And I suspect that that dynamic is somewhat common in relationships, honestly, and that um, it probably, to the degree that it exists, often falls along those gender lines, um, that, that men are more likely to assume that uh, they can take care of it themselves with whatever they've got on board already. And women are more likely to um, look to um, the community, the outside authorities, right, to, to find the wisdom and, and bring that in. Um, both of which approaches are valid and valuable, although the second one is more easily gamed in a global culture in which the authorities aren't your friends and the wise women with whom you share you know, coffee, but actually um, you know, anonymous, often corporate entities. So I guess I would say that the, the third way, if you will, um, which is, is I think what we are suggesting in the book is to consider what this thing is that you have experienced and you know how, how out of step with the millions, tens of millions, depending on how far back you want to go, you know, billions of years of evolution that has, that has led you to this point, um, is your current experience. And what are the chances that it was hyper novelty that got you into this and therefore a relatively hyper novel solution that you will need to get you out of it? Or uh, can the tools that you already have on board or a change in behavior, for instance, uh, affect you well enough to get you out of the current mess that you're in, whatever it is? Um, I would uh, point out, though, Heather hints at this when she talks about the difference between our environment and the ancestral environment. In the ancestral environment, you would be wise to take advantage of the advice offered, especially by people in your lineage who had specialized in figuring out what to do. It is possible that some of what they would offer you would be of little medical value, right? But it is unlikely that longstanding medical traditions, even extremely primitive ones, would be harmful to you, right? In other words, there is a selective process that results in the accumulation of wisdom about what to do about this and that sort of thing. And in fact, pharmaceutical companies have spotted this and they have uh, done a bunch of globetrotting looking for compounds in the forests of the world that are being successfully used um, that they can borrow and shout Eureka over. We don't live in a world where your instinct about how safe things are is any good. And it is nowhere worse than when it comes to modern medicine. Iatrogenic harm is incredibly common. Things that we thought were safe, like, uh, like Benadryl, Tylenol, it turns out there's a long history of knowing it's not safe that the public <laughs> is largely unaware of. But, you know, Benadryl, uh, Seldane, um, Erythromycin, all of these things, every NSAID turns out to have significant harms. In some of these cases, your doctor probably isn't even aware. If you ask your doctor about um, heart damage from erythromycin, they're probably unaware that it does it, um, right? Nobody warns you about this with Advil. And so the problem, Andrew, is that there is no wise place to stand that allows you to mitigate harm here. We are constantly in, in a, uh, a choice between failure modes. Do I go to the doctor and have my doctor tell me what they always tell me? Oh, here, take this pill. Is it safe? Oh, it's very safe. Really? I know you don't know that because I know how many drugs have turned out not to be safe after decades, right? One of the things I campaigned on was alternative medicines because I just instinctively admired and respected them. 
And one other thing that happens in my household is that if my elderly Chinese mom is around, she'll just throw some uh, herbal remedy in front of me and then I will take it without thinking twice about it <laughs> because I just think to myself, well, I, I'm very confident this isn't going to harm me. Like it's probably going to help me. So let me just do that. Like that, that is so, something that I, I've just internalized naturally. And that's, I mean, that is, we would argue effectively an evolutionary perspective that you've onboarded without necessarily knowing that that is what it was. You know, your elderly Chinese mother is bringing with her the wisdom of generations of, of, of millennia, right? In this case. And because of that, you can be very confident that it's not going to hurt you. It's possible that it won't help, um, but it's unlikely to do harm. It seems, you know, there is there are stories about whatever it is having helped in the past. And maybe some of those stories are actually about, um, you know, being you know, the preparation and the presence to the loved one who is caring for you and that you need, you know, your body needs to know that it's protected for some number of hours when it doesn't have to be worried at all about, you know, risks from outside. You know, maybe it's not actually about the, the botanicals or the, or, the, or the fungal medicine itself, or maybe it is. I'm sure maybe there are it cases is. In, both, in both of those camps. Oh yeah, I, I I've been taking those herbal remedies since I was a kid, and they certainly don't hurt. And a lot of the times, it seems like they help. <laughs> you know what makes them work even better? If you chase them with chicken soup. Agree. You just chase that, and them that happens. Little... That happened a lot. I'd yeah, have the remedy and then some chicken soup. It definitely it's a it's a kind of a, a bringing together of two medical traditions, um, and it right. uh, it has a synergistic effect. Uh, so there's another idea in the book that you used in different contexts that I loved is Chesterton's gate where someone shows up and it's like, Hey, there's this gate. We don't know what it's doing here. Let's get rid of it. And then someone, and then someone says, well, we can't get rid of it until you find out what it's doing here. Right. <laughs> You'll know when you know why they installed it, whether or not it's time to take it out. Yeah. You don't wait to see what goes wrong after getting rid of something to decide, ah, oh, maybe we shouldn't have taken that thing out at all. Yeah, and so, right, we, we talk about then we apply that to like Chesterton's organs, Chesterton's breast milk, Chesterton's religions even, right? You know, look at all of the things that humans have been living with, Chesterton's ancestral medicines, right? You know, we don't simply throw these out because there's some new thing on the block, new kid on the block. And actually, I know you're going to say something here, but I'm thinking about this is in the Western tradition rather than the Chinese medicine tradition. But early in the 20th century, there was a movement among doctors to treat things like tuberculosis with what was being called heliotherapy, which just means get out in the sun, right? Like get out in the sun and get your good vitamins. old heliotherapy. Literal heliotherapy. I'm on board. Right. And um, and also open air therapy, which, you know, these do not sound high tech because they're not. But you know, you'd throw up in the windows towards you'd actually roll patients out if they were not ambulatory out into the sun where the air was blowing and the sun was shining. And we still don't know all of the mechanisms by which this works, but it does work into this environment came one of the most amazing successes of, of Western medicine, which is antibiotics, widespread antibiotics. And instead of using antibiotics on top of these existing low-tech, incredibly effective treatments of heliotherapy and open-air therapy, what happened was in an effort to control things, to make things constrained, to make things easy to track, we moved patients inside, we made windows unopenable, we made rooms tiny, all of which is going to increase the risk of at least respiratory um, infections. And we just started treating with the new instead of adding it to the old. 
You know, why would we ever do that? Why would we get rid of the old when it's working, when something new shows up? We should be adding rather than replacing. They didn't yeah, feel, feel even free wash to down the antibiotics with chicken soup. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> get that person some sunshine, some chicken soup, and some Chinese herbal remedies. At least you're not going to hurt them. And it turns out all of these things have uh, have reasons behind them. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, uh, no, not, not at all. Um, you know, another thing from the book where you, you pointed out exercise tends to reduce uh, depression and anxiety. It's like, maybe we should be prescribing that. I was like, oh my gosh, they're right. Or, you know, going outside on the regular tends to make you feel better, which I find, um, I think everyone finds it, that any kind of exposure to uh, the sun and nature uh, will help your mental health, at least in some measure. I, th I think you need to be careful here, Andrew. It sounds to me like you're lazy shaming. Well, maybe I'm indoor shaming. Are you indoor uh, shaming? Brett, I mean, yeah. you know. You're shut in shaming. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. Andrew, I'm shut in shaming. I'm That's sure true. it's immoral. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, I don't think we write this into the book, but um, you know, even just shooting to get outside into the sun for a few minutes early in the day, when we also know that getting direct exposure to sun early in the day helps with, believe it or not, sleep patterns, right? Not only does it help with a depression and anxiety, and obviously, you know, and, and, and reduces your risk of infection from certain things, but it actually just getting that shift light, that, you know, the blue shift light that is reflective of the morning sun into your brain early or direct into your eyes, the earlier in the day possible, the more likely you are to be able to fall asleep easily at night and sleep well. And, you know, this is something that, as far as I can tell, almost no one, if anyone, was talking about 30, 40 years ago. But 30, 40 years ago already, people were having a ton of sleep problems. And you know what? You know what was associated with that? Um, electric lights at night. No, no thinking about what the spectrum was that they were uh, that they were on. Uh, the use of increasingly the use of pharmaceuticals to help you get to sleep and alarm clocks. Alarm clocks that you know blast you awake at a certain time every morning, regardless of where you are in your sleep cycle. None of this is conducive to actually getting into a rhythm with your own sleep cycle. And in fact. Um I don't want to, I don't know enough about the history to say, but there is something interesting about the fact that what we've done is used coffee as a substitute for the built-in system we have for regularizing your pattern of mental activity and inactivity. And, you know, coffee is something you can sell, right? It's hard, it's hard to make money on sunlight. And, um, <laughs> I mean, if you could, that'd be a great business. <laughs> the sun tax. Well, all right. Can, can you edit that out? We'll just, idea. We'll and see if we can find a business model in here. But yeah, yeah the sun, no, no. What well, well, it starts out with the sun shade. We do the Mr. Burns and we block the sun. Mm -hmm. And then we're like, if you want any sunlight, got to pay the tax. Wait this a minute. Is genius. Is that what this lockdown stuff is? Are they going to sell us sunlight? Andrew, I think you may have figured it out. Mr. Burns might have gotten in there. <laughs> yeah, this is from the, the Simpsons movie from a, a while back. Uh, you know what? One thing this conversation has reminded me of, and, and this, I, I think you'll agree with this. Uh, I was running for mayor of New York City. And I was brought into yeshiva schools and Catholic schools, and I saw these kids who were learning in these environments. And then uh, I was questioned about religious schooling, and I was very supportive of religious schooling because I said, "Look, I like 
they're serving these kids. And if there are individual issues, like it should be taken very much in the context of people who are educating their kids and like working hard in a particular way that, uh, you know, is, is working with their community. And I got freaking lambasted for this in a way, <laughs> in a way that like, really, I found it kind of surprising. I think that what, one of the things I'm sort of suggesting is that I'm not sure what it is, but I, I think I naturally tend towards um, like a degree of um, deference to uh, wisdom that's been built up over a long period of time uh, and a degree of skepticism towards what you'd consider like a modern rubric where someone's like, oh, this is the way you do it. This is the way you do it. And if you don't do this, then you're like screwing it up. And it's like, well, how, you know, like, how long have you been at this? And, you know, they've been at this for a very long time. And like, are, are there actual like, uh, you know, like, is it such that applying these modern standards is like working 99.9% .9 of the time? <laughs> like all this, cause like they're, you know, they're anyway. So th this is what it reminded me of because that like, like I um, was shocked at the um, level of energy um, around critiques of like uh, different approaches, um, at least to, you know, people are very passionate about on the schooling side. Um, there's a, there's a very narrow, narrow focus, I think among the, you know, the so-called elites, the educated coastal class of which we are all members um, on religion, we're past that, right? Like many people imagine that that is a sign of sophistication to recognize that they are beyond that and finding value in traditions, regardless of how you feel about the sort of the central metaphor of, of a god, um, is somehow suspect. And I, you know, you've seen this as you just described, and we've certainly seen this as evolutionary biologists who don't have faith ourselves, but are, um, you know, have found so much value, not only in these traditions, but also in so many people who do have faith. That is not antithetical to a, an evolutionary understanding of the world. And frankly, I think the, the, the simple rubric that many of the, you know, the, the liberal elites have with regard to if religion then bad is obscuring far more untruths in many of the modern ideology um, that they are somehow blinded to. Yeah, I would, I would say the problem is we're not comparing it to the proper thing. Mm. Um, Religious schooling is often done well. It is very easy to do badly, right? And it has been used. I think what you what you got as pushback is uh, to the extent that it's honorable pushback. It is trauma from having seen religion as an excuse to misinform children about things that are really the basis of our collective understanding of the universe and therefore mm -hmm. the basis of sound policy. How are we to govern ourselves? It's one thing if, you know, a God gave us a disposable planet and said, use it up because it's, you know, it's not the ultimate point of this. It's another thing if we recognize actually we're the stewards of the most interesting rock in the known universe and we are not allowed to destroy it, right? We owe it to future generations to leave it here. So you can see religious schooling can be an opt out for things that are essential. That is often not what it is. And it does have this break um, and the comparison to me, the schooling that is non-religious these days, shockingly, almost across the board, looks effectively like a cult. That is to say, it's a religion without having passed the test of time. And that is very frightening. So many of the things that are being dispensed in these modern secular schools, including public schools, does not 
pass a scientific test either. And so if you compare those two things to each other, which error would I prefer? You know, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, metaphorical grounding that causes the teaching not to be as modern as it might be, or a, a grab bag of uh, assertions, many of them uh, cynical, designed to you know advance an ideology i prefer the former now the problem and what we argue in the book is that we are stuck in this pickle not just with schooling but with everything there is in general nowhere to go back to there is no diet there is no way of educating there's no nothing. i i feel for you because you, you were such it, it seemed from reading your book um you seem like you were such uh, hands-on, diligent parents. <laughs> Where, like, like when you say there's like no place to go back to, because as a parent, you do feel sort of stuck. You're like, okay, you know, like which which boat am I going to go with? Yeah, very much so. If I can just add in before yep. we, before we pivot in the way I think you're you're going, I want to say I think there's a category error in people's heads that explains partially, you know, the response that excuse me, the response that you got, Andrew, to um, being. Um, accepting and embracing of religious schools and the response that we've gotten too, which is that you know, religious school isn't a thing. You know, yeshivas and Jesuit academies are not the same as Jesus King. And that's not to say that there aren't even some, you know, evangelical um, experiences that may be worthwhile, but you know, that that is the thing that most of us have in our heads, I think, um, at least among the sort of the you know, the, the liberal intellectual class when we hear religious school, that, you know, oh, that's, you know, those are the people who take their kids out of school so they never hear any talk of evolution. And that, you know, that does seem like- Yeah, that's not, that, that they, uh, I, like I guess a, maybe I'm, I'm in circles where that's not what I think of either. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, yeshivas, Jesuit schools, Episcopal schools, you know, there, there are a lot of, of ways to teach with a, a founding in religion that's extraordinary. The problem, I mean, and it is the, the, central, the central theme of the book, is that we are in effect across the board, whether it's gender or schooling or the way we govern ourselves or any of these things, forced to architect something new. And in general, it is not something that if you simply know, you can describe it, right? You can't blueprint these things. You have to navigate to them. You have to prototype and go in the right direction, which means you have to agree what the purpose of the exercise is. So you know whether your prototype was better or worse than the last one. And this is a tough message because most people are what we would call verificationists. Maybe we're all born verificationists where we look for evidence that supports our perspective. Yeah. The scientific worldview requires you to do the opposite. You have to look at the things that suggest you don't have it right. And so if you go through our book and you're a conservative, you'll find, <laughs> right, it, it is hard, it's, it's, it's unnatural and it's, it's and painful. And it's irritating too, yeah. because you're constantly having to reassess and change your mind. But it makes your model get better over time. It is the key to making your model anti-fragile. And so if you do that, if, you, if, you, if you're a verificationist and you go through our book, if you're a conservative, you'll say, oh, they're conservatives, right? If you're, if, if you're a, a liberal, and you go through it, you'll think actually these people are radicals, right? They're they're talking about a total revamp, right? This you is, end this up is, with a very very radical seeming conclusion, which we'll return to. Right. Continue. And the point is, they're both there, 
right? We're arguing for something extremely radical. And we're arguing that we have to listen to the conservatives as we prototype this thing, because if not, the liberal failure mode is going to is going to kick in like we've never seen before. And we're going to have nothing but, you know, unintended consequences from sea to shining sea. So that's the message. We have to navigate anew, which requires us to understand what conservatives have right and what they don't. You should start a political movement, my friends. Uh, <laughs> well, one idea I also wanted to affirm from the book that I loved so much, which is that like, a myth can be false but useful. Uh, I thought that was so powerful. And you use an example where all farmers are told to plant their crops during the full moon because it's good for their crops, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but, but, but because, you know, it changes all the time. But it turns out them all planting their crops in the full moon makes them collectively more successful because uh, predators aren't able to come eat the crops at the, you know, because everyone's planting at the same time. So like the damage will be less. Uh, and so if you were a modern, you showed up and you'd be like, this is the dumbest <laughs> suggestion in the world. If you didn't understand that, that there was an underlying purpose. Yeah. So I mean, we do, the phrase we use is literally false, metaphorically true. And we come in with our modern visions and we listen to the words that people say. And we think that the words that people say, the cover story basically is the whole thing. And of course it's not. And so just exactly as you just said, the moon is effectively a giant sky calendar that everyone can see that is the same for everyone. And so, you know, fine, put aside, if you will, uh, that the moon itself or the gods that drive it uh, care about when it is that you, the individual farmers are planting and recognize that having this belief in everyone's heads across a region allows for synchronization of both planting and harvesting and that reduces crop loss because it synchronizes not just the farmers and therefore their crops, but also the crop predators. Yeah, in fact, it's a very beautiful story because religious people who I in general get along with very easily hate it when I say this, but um, the moon and actually our entire solar system cannot have been the creation of a loving God or gods because nothing's an integer. And so it, it befuddles every attempt to to um, figure out how many days there are in a year. Hey, not even an integer, you know, no wonder culture after culture has thought they had the number and then they've watched their calendar march so that, you know, the planting moves off is, over time. Right. <laughs> um, Maybe they're the creation of a trickster God. Right? Well, that's, a, that's plausible that it's a, a, a trickster God could do this, right? Just to mess you up. But the basic point is even in such a circumstance, ancient wisdom is actually the result of a process that discovers an elegant solution even when you can't write it out right the discovery of how long the year is is a very new discovery the fact that the moon phase doesn't you know isn't regular with respect to the seasons because we don't have an integer there either still the point is all you need to do is get everybody to agree on what day to do it that's where the benefit comes from that day can move within yeah. a month. But the point is everybody can see the moon and we can all agree when it's full. That's good enough. So when I talked about you both starting a political movement, uh, Brett, it seemed like you were about to say something, which excites me. Um, <laughs> one, one of the things that I am, so I, I've been going through a, a particular progression or evolution myself, uh, and I've become convinced of a couple of things. There's this narrow band of media organizations that are talking to ourselves and each other while like the rest of the country is looking around, uh, just getting more and more restive, 
and agitated and more mistrustful and, and the rest of it. Um, and I personally am not content with hanging out on like the, the in, in like the corporate lair, talking to like a shrinking group. <laughs> like I want to go to where uh, the people actually are and to, to where the 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 um, the frankly, the country is either going to be won or lost. Uh, and my campaign, it sounds like your book and my campaign are similar that I just went around to the campfires uh, <laughs> and, and uh, no, um, I see the power of the campfires. Um, right now, I'm interested in trying to make them more powerful still, maybe even uh, getting resources to them um, because they are reaching as many or more people um, than the media outlets that, for whatever reason, people still see as authoritative uh, in these dimensions. So. So th this is some of the, the stuff that I've been weighing and, and figuring out how we can make use of, um, because I can sense that certain, the, the narrative you speak of is, uh, it's, it's less and less trusted um, and it's less and less worthy of being trusted, frankly. <laughs> like I, I, I'm not sure when that worm turned, but it certainly, you know, like it, it, it did at some point. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on trying to build what in my mind would be a very difficult to frame political movement because you're trying to get people on board with a vision while saying, look, I'm not going to be uh, dictating like, hey, when you do X, Y, and Z, it's more like we need some principles in mind uh, and then head towards a destination. Um, well, first thing to say is uh, I think starting a political movement is a terrible idea. I think starting a non-political movement is a great idea. It's essential, and this is the moment, and uh, you're a pioneer in this landscape, and, and uh, I, and I know we, uh, applaud what you're doing. Um, if I can be candid, I think you're headed for a brick wall, and, you know, in some sense, this won't be the first time you've run into one, and I do think maybe there's a, you know, the anti-fragile story of Andrew Yang is uh, unfolding in front of us, but in order to do what you're doing, you're going to have to defeat the paradox of the lesser evil, right? This is going to be used to thrash your movement to shreds at the point that we have an election because um, fill in the blank is going to be an evil that requires us to vote for whatever garbage the DNC wants to feed us, right? I mean, that's just the structure of the thing. And if you don't have an answer to why we cannot listen to that, that there may be hazards associated with fill in the blank, but those hazards are an argument for doing this now because those hazards only get worse over time. So you will remember during the last election, the Unity 2020 proposal was constructed specifically to defeat that problem so that you couldn't say, hey, we can't do this now because you'll elect fill in the blank, right? In that case, it was Trump. Um, because it may be Trump again, but continue. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. If it's Trump again, then this is the only question because uh, so many people have this sort of uh, PTSD that causes them to vote for whatever garbage the DNC feeds them because, the you know, don't forget, right, the greater evil wasn't always Trump, right? It was Mitt Romney, right? It was, it was George W. Bush, right? And these are people that we became nostalgic for during... The Trump era. So the point is, this is just a, this is a structure, a game theoretic structure designed exactly to prevent you from doing what you're doing. And you got to beat it structurally in order yep. to succeed. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is, look, 
Um, well, describe the structure that you proposed for so the Unity 2020. Yeah, the, the Unity 2020 structure, which some of some of your audience will remember, was um, that we effectively nominate a team, somebody from the left, somebody from the right, right? These would be courageous, insightful patriots, right? And in fact, your name was uh, our first proposal from for somebody from the left. Um, and the idea is that they would agree to run as a team, right? You don't have to alter the constitution to do this. One of them would run at the top of the ticket. The person who runs at the top of the ticket is chosen by a coin flip. They would govern by consensus and only in the rare instances, hopefully never instances in which they couldn't reach agreement on what the best policy was, would the person at the top of the ticket make the call. And then four years in, the roles would reverse and they would run uh, with the former president running as vice president. And the point was, this neutralizes the lesser evil because it doesn't borrow. Everybody knows that their interests are represented in the room. And so it doesn't actually borrow from one side and risk electing the other. Um, and we saw in our internal polling data that actually the people who volunteered to work with us were very evenly divided. So this structure actually worked. So between partisan, like uh, divided between sides of the aisle. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So the point was, it didn't actually spoil the election. And we also built in a fail safe. And we said, look, if this is not, uh, if this thing doesn't catalyze to the point that it's a plausible contender, we'll pull the plug on it, which we did. Right. So we were good to our word. But anyway, that's all beside the point. You need some structure to beat the lesser evil paradox, or they're going to use it to destroy you. And um, look, you're doing the work. Um, I we would be happy to, we are fellow travelers, clearly, we want good governance, and we'd love to figure out what good governance is, and we're all open to listening to what the evidence suggests and all of that. Uh, I am concerned that we are watching um, a very rapid progression to some new landscape that none of us have been in, uh, and that... Uh, I, I agree. I think it's actually the most likely scenario right now. And Which if one? you play out the next several years... Um, Republicans take the House next year, maybe the Senate. Very hard to have a Democratic victory uh, policy-wise if Republicans have um, either one House or both. Uh, you roll into 24. Trump is the Republican nominee. Democrats don't know what to do. They run Joe Biden again. Uh, and then you have, in all probability, a Trump victory, uh, or if not a Trump victory, a Trump uh, close call that he will claim victory. And in either scenario, you wind up with chaos and violence on the streets uh, and possibly an autocrat um, and a population that at this point has been so disgusted and disenchanted that, that they just kind of slump into the end of democracy. I think this is a pretty realistic scenario. Well, slump well, into the end of democracy is an unfortunately very apt yeah, vision, I think. Uh, <laughs> what is it? Slouching towards Bethlehem? Yeah, um, slump into the end of democracy. So yeah, um, I will point out that there was a structural solution to this, too. Uh, as, as this was all unfolding, uh, I advocated for convict Trump, pardon him, and pardon anybody who was nonviolent in either the insurrection at the Capitol or the BLM riots and neutralize this, right? 
provide us a structure in which these things aren't the charged elements that control our next electoral cycle so that we can actually figure out what to do and how to govern ourselves. And begin to talk about what it is that drove people uh, into the streets for the entire you know, summer of 2020 in Portland, rioting, right. and into the Capitol on January 6th. You know, at base, there were you know, a small number of violent bad actors, but there were a lot of people who were actually, who were actually acting from passion and disenfranchisement. Yeah, misguided people. I think, I think the overall arching message is, look, you, you've started something. We're enthusiastic to see it. Uh, we'd love to help you think through how to avoid the pitfalls. We've also started something. Maybe they're the same something. I don't know. But uh, let's put it this way. Every smart person we know is looking for the way out of a political death spiral that is threatening every ounce of what made the West special. And it isn't just the U.S., right? We, we may need to lead the West out of this if we can figure out which way is up again. But, um, but nonetheless, the West is in jeopardy. This can't be allowed to unfold because, in effect, it's the Chesterton's fence problem, right? Mm -hmm. People don't understand. As much as there's terrible, frustrating stuff in our system in desperate need of fixing, and it has needed fixing for decades, they don't see the part that works beautifully because it just works. And to upend it, we are, we are toying with being in a far worse, far less fair, far less dynamic and productive world just simply by throwing out the stuff that we don't realize is actually, yes, it's the, the, the well-being of the West is not fairly distributed. That is absolutely true. But the West is very productive. Right. You don't want to throw out the productivity. You want to figure out how to make the system fair. That's the point. Yeah, and, and, and it's not like the, the inequities are going to get better under an autocrat or whatnot. You know, I mean, like we the, know they'll get worse. Right. The West has been has been capable of producing of being productive, but in a real way, like in a, you know, generating the creative and analytical and healing and communicative, you know, whatever it is that individuals have passions and skills for the West's ways of approaching people and opportunity has allowed more people access to all of those things to be their best selves. And you know, one of the things that, that I've been saying for decades and I, you know, we sort of uh, approach it in the book is for all of those who would argue that the West is the worst place on the planet, that, you know, that we are doing things far worse than anywhere else, it's very hard to do right now because of, of COVID and the public policies surrounding it, but go somewhere else, like travel somewhere that isn't a Disney-fied version of your home and actually be there and hang out in the town square or in the bar or whatever, regardless. You know, of my, my, my last there. podcast guest said the same thing where she, she was in the South of India and was like, I love this country. And anyone who doesn't think it's great should also go take a bus in the South of India. And, you know, you've been um, uh, on many of those buses uh, I, I instinctively love this country in part because, you know, I, my family immigrated here and um, my brother and I have had the kind of lives that um, our grandparents or our parents can only have dreamed of. That's yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, my, my lineage has gotten awfully used to fleeing for our lives. And the fact is, you know, America 
has been a great place for my persecuted relatives, right? It's been a very fair place. Has it been perfectly fair? No, right? And, you know, we are liberals, right? We are very interested in seeing the degree to which the system is systematically unfair. Of course, we want to see that fixed. That's the whole point of the project, right? Um, but to, the, to toy with, with the inverse, right? With making it desperately unfair in some direction that at the moment seems reasonable to somebody is just, it, it is the height of insanity. And yeah, one of the problems really for all of us, but for educators especially, is to figure out how to not teach caricatures of the past where we can all see with the hindsight of 50 or 100 or 1,000 years how what mistakes looked like and how they sent populations into totalitarianism. And no one imagines that they would recognize that, that when it was happening to them in the present, it wouldn't feel the way they've been taught it looked in retrospect. So how, you know, how can we actively reflect and encourage everyone to actively reflect on what do those early things look like? And if we can't, then we, you know, we will, as you say, slump into the end of democracy. <laughs> that, that will happen. Well, you point out this hazard at the end of your book um, as one of the dangers when you advocate for trying to open up the fourth frontier and get away from the growth for growth sake mindset that will lead us to catastrophe over time. I did want to end asking about how we can get there. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It was a radical proposal. Uh, I really liked the way your book built up to it, where it stood to reason by the end. They're like, oh yeah, that's right. If, if we do our uh, reductionist uh, growth approach, uh, it is going to end up being calamitous <laughs> for, for everyone. Uh, and so what do you imagine, in, uh, in addition to, obviously, I think everyone should read this book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the, the 21st Century, and think deeply about how we can uh, shift gears. Um, what is the best approach in your minds to try to activate groups of people around this different uh this different mindset it is a socially self-catalyzing phenomenon that is already clearly underway there are a huge number of us who are opting out of whatever that engine is that's feeding us a narrative right and we've opted into other things that make sense and it's very frustrating clearly to those who are tending the narrative that we won't be dissuaded by their periodic attempts to, to demonize you or Joe Rogan or whoever it might be. Um, so in a sense, people are looking for reason and they are finding people who at the very least are not lying to them and trying to figure out where we are in history, what we are to do about it. And I think we can just show up. And the biggest obstacle is that there is a culture of fear around acknowledging your doubts about where we are and about our leadership and about what's really driving all of this. But people have to be emboldened. And I think there are some of us who have stepped out in front of this thing and we've said, this is not adding up. Here's how you know, right? Check our work. And, and watch us correct our mistakes when we make them. Right. And for each of us who has done that in some large venue, there are a lot of people who have stepped up behind us and said, you know what, 
that does make sense, right? We have large followings of people who are opting out with us. And I think the point is um, either you have the particular defects of character that cause you to step out first and then discover what it is on the other side that doesn't want that to happen, or you don't, but each, you know, each tier makes it safe for the next one to step up and say, you know, I don't, I don't believe this either. And uh, if we keep doing that, the point is it grows. And, you know, is there a solid 30% that will absolutely um, double down, you know, until they've exhausted every conceivable mechanism for doing so? Yes, but we don't need that 30%. We know from the Hidden Tribes report that there is this exhausted middle that is huge. And frankly, we don't really care about each other's ideology. It's beside the point. We're so off track that the things we differ over are irrelevant. We need to get back to the basic process of going forward. Well, as you yep. as you named your party. Right, exactly. And you, know, you were seeing this in effectively the campfires that you were doing. Uh, and we were seeing this for 15 years in the classrooms and field trips and labs at Evergreen. You know, we had we had a non-elite student body. Some of our students were elite and some of them were veterans and some of them were grandmothers and some of them had been homeschooled or unschooled or Montessori schooled or you know any number of kinds of remarkable educational experiences. And they came into our classrooms as a diverse lot of people, 25 or 50 at a time. And we created community by establishing that Everyone here is allowed to speak freely and explore ideas and is expected to publicly correct their errors if they discover they have made them and to never conflate the thing that comes out of your mouth with the fundamental thing that you are as a human being. We don't say, if I disagree with you, I therefore dislike you as a person. That is that is a conflation that, that will not Amen. be tolerated. And yeah. it worked. Like, you know, we were, we were doing this at a very much smaller scale successfully in these actually diverse classrooms for 15 years and it was amazing like that did bring people together and it revealed it revealed how little actual disagreement people have when they're allowed to speak to each other yep you should just do that for the entire country <laughs> how does it scale right and i think this is part of what you you're trying to do like figure out how it scales right well you know you say that andrew and um in some sense that's accidentally what we're doing and yeah. it's not even the country, right? It's for anybody with ears to hear. That's what our, our, our Dark Horse podcast is about. I will say, when you do that, as you're discovering, there are, you know, <laughs> the funny thing about the third rail metaphor is that it's not up to date because there are many different third rails with different amounts of, of voltage that one has to be concerned about. Um, and the point is, for those who can get past the narrative about, you know, what's wrong with the people they're suddenly listening to, for those who get past that, um, there's a lot to be done. And what we're doing on our podcast isn't so different from what we did in the classroom. It's, it's in one way different because we don't know our audience in the way that we knew every single one of our students. But in another way, it's the same thing. And it's part of a network of people who are doing variations on that theme you're clearly in this network with a particular bent. And anyway, I, I think it's almost the only hopeful thing, but it's so big, you know, this, this network of people who are opting out and trying to forge the path forward that it, it really, it really does give me and us hope. Yeah. Oh, you all give me hope. And I learned so much in this book about being a better human, 
husband, partner, parent. May forward meet the fourth frontier together. Yes. Hell yeah. We can put your book meets our book. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, thank you, Heather. I really appreciate it. Um, so great to be able to sit down with you all. Everyone should buy their book. It will make you a healthier, wiser, um, more in touch with your own humanity person. And congratulations on a massive achievement. Uh, you know, reading it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about you and your family, um, you know, and, and some of the environments you've been in, but you should be really proud of it. Thank you. Thank you. Really Thank appreciate you so that, Andrew. And uh, glad to find ourselves uh, on, the same, on the same road. I hope that this is the first of many conversations, both. Oh, no doubt. Um, for sure. We'll, we'll do it in person at some point. Great. Yes. Looking forward to it.